Hi there, welcome along. Uh, fabulous to have you here for the very first in our podcast series uh, that we've titled The Power of Emotionally Empowered Educators. Uh, this podcast today is about understanding human behaviour and I wanted to, if I may just step back a little bit from that topic for, for just a brief moment to explain why. Why on earth we're within a series of resources around teacher, educator, school leader wellbeing that we would be bringing you a a little segment on on the power of emotionally empowered educators. Um, the reason is that we know what stresses teachers and school leaders at a really high level. Uh, there hasn't been an enormous body of research that's been done on the overlap. It's been a bit done on teachers, a bit done on school leaders, a bit done on principals. There hasn't been an enormous amount that's been done on what about all of us all together. Um, but the body of work that has been done, and I lean on some really wonderful professionals here like Louisa Hebharts, um in South Australia, who has done that that piece of work of bringing to that, those uh, that synthesis of research together. And what she's found is that there's three. There's three things that are still kind of right at the top of the tree when it comes to stressing educators. Uh, number one is student behaviour, uh, student conduct in the classroom and around the school. And that may come as a surprise. It may come as, as no surprise to you, but it's undoubted that there's still a level of angst and a level of stress and a level of impact on teacher well-being uh, by perhaps not so much the behaviour that has occurred that day, but often an, a level of anxiety around there being a lack sometimes of a plan that it could be any better tomorrow. Our ambition in this podcast and indeed in this series is to get to a point where you might have a really strong understanding of human behaviour and as such, be able to devise for, you some, for yourself some locally, contextually respectful ways of working with young people that can allow you to perhaps sleep better at night uh, as a result of being able to devise your own plan that things will be a little bit better tomorrow. So that's really important. What comes in at number two and number three is workload. And what we believe is that by understanding human behavior, that you can actually find some more time to do the stuff that lights you up like teach. And then the third one is issues with parents. We might save that one for another podcast. So we're hoping that today we can bring you some really cutting edge research, um, some new ways of thinking and some new ways of perhaps commencing some really important work in this area that might even feel a little different. When we speak about emotionally empowering you, what we want you to do is to be able to understand the way that people grow, the way that people develop, the way that people socialize, which is perhaps different to the conversations that you may have had about student conduct before. Um, I think before what we've done is to be get, get very strategic around what are the things that we do when we encounter student behavior, or perhaps even sometimes what are the things that we could do that might prevent student behavior, which leads us into judgment, unfortunately, because what we need to do once we've deployed some of these strategies is judge them. We need to decide whether they worked or not. Now, we're going to reject that in our podcast straight up today because nothing works all of the time and nothing almost never works as well. What we need to do is instead of get strategic and thereby judgmental about our work is actually get into building capacity, emotionally empowering you to be able to survey the landscape of your classroom or the playground as the case may be, and to be able to better understand, ah, this, this is what's going on here. Now, to do that understanding, what we need to do is to take a step behind the, the behavior. We need to have a little look at the muscle 
with which we do our behaving. Um, now, some people might think that that's our mouth. Um, some people might think that that's our fists uh, or our legs, um, but it's not true. The muscle with which we do all of our behaving is the brain. And what I'd like to do today is to commence by just unpacking the brain a little bit by looking at two key components that we don't talk about enough when, as educators, indeed, I think that by the end of this little segment, you'll probably agree that it'd be fabulous if parents also had this knowledge as well. Um, and you may even be led to think that I'm about here to talk about the left and right hemispheres of our brain. Um, not so. Uh, the, I am a, a distinct fan of Carol Dweck and her amazing work on growth mindset. But even Dweck has had to address that there are some challenges um, with a kind of basic or even internet meme level understanding of Dweck's incredible body of work. And that is that people are sort of running around thinking that they're either a left brainer or a right brainer. Again, not true. You are incredibly adept at using both hemispheres of your brain. And in fact, your propensity for one side or the other is, is quite slight. It's noticeable in us as human beings and also in other people, but it's slight. Uh, we are using the left and the right hemispheres of our brain uh, constantly and interchangeably and, um, and connectedly across our entire day of work. And when we're thinking left and brain, the part of the that when we're thinking left and right brain, the part of the brain that we are talking about is what we call the neocortex. And that's what I'd like to explore today is one, the neocortex and two, the limbic system and its role when young people are in a learning environment. So the neocortex, its basic function is that what we would like the neocortex to do is all the stuff that it's amazing at, all the stuff that it's genius at, which is to think, um, it's to problem solve, it's to organize our logic, um, it's our language, it's our arithmetic, um, it's our scientific understanding, it's basically any time that we're thinking, we're engaging either the left or the right or both sides of our neocortex. And that's pretty cool. Um, in human beings, the neocortex is larger comparative to the rest of our brain, but also comparative to other species on the planet. And that means that we've kind of established ourselves at the top of a food chain. Uh, we've been able to civilize. We've been able to do all sorts of things, like even build schools and focus on education using amazing neocortex abilities, things like foresight, things like insight, that no other species on the planet really has a capacity for. Um, and when I speak to educators about the neocortex, I'm often asking things like, would you agree that our young people do their best learning when they're able to access their neocortex? And people nod and say, well, yes, it would seem so. I'll then ask, do you think we do our best teaching when we're able to think straight? And people again nod and say yes. And then I ask some things like, wouldn't it be easier if we could work with parents and have them access the neocortex of their brain and to just be thinking straight when they come in and have a chat with us about what's been happening in the classroom. And people tend to close their eyes and nod um, wishfully, <laughs> thinking, yes, it would be great if they did. But none of us do. None of those stakeholder groups, educators, students, or parents are able to stay in neocortex land all the time. And the reason for it is because of another component of our brain called the limbic system. Now, 
I label it a component, even though it's a complex uh, kind of area of the brain com comprising many different parts. Probably the bit that's the most interesting within our limbic system is a piece, uh, a little beastie called amygdala. Amygdala's job, as it was described to me by a, a very clever behavioral uh, scientist called Darren Hill, he says that the, the amygdala is like the traffic cop in the brain. It makes decisions for us about whether we are going to use our neocortex or whether we're going to use our limbic system. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because it prompts a thought for us around how good, why can't we use both? And how human beings as a species have kind of evolved to not be a bother, not to be limbic system and neocortex at the same time. In fact, we're quite distinctly one part of the brain or the other. We're either thinking or we're feeling. This is really important because there's been times in our, in our history where we've needed to be emotional. And every single emotion that the limbic system can conjure has evolved within us for a reason. Uh, the good ones, the nice feelings have evolved to encourage us to do more of those things that either provide pleasure, that nourish us, or perhaps even to help us procreate. And then there are the negative feelings, uh, the things that come along that kind of have a reason for us to feel it, even though it doesn't feel all that fabulous. Uh, fear is a really good example of that. We don't like fear. It, it, it feels awful, um, but we need it. In fact, could you imagine driving to work today if nobody felt fear? Um, we need it. It has a role. Its job is to keep us safe. Anger has a role as well. Anger is um, Anger's role is to kind of compel us into action to protect the things that we value really strongly. It's there so that, for instance, as a parent, if you found a stranger in your house about to open your child's bedroom door in the middle of the night, that you would kind of abandon all sense of personal safety and leap um, into action to defend the thing that you prize, you value most sincerely. So that's really important. And then there's a topic called uh, a feeling that we can feel called shame. We're going to talk about that in another podcast in a bit more in a bit more detail. But shame has a job too, and it's to let us know when we've done the right thing and the wrong thing. So in schools, our job is not necessarily to just eliminate bad feelings. Um, it's to help our young people have an appropriate relationship with them, so that they can know when they can and should feel them so that they cannot feel ashamed or embarrassed when those feelings come along and to know that they are there for a reason. It's okay to feel those things. So the neocortex and the limbic system. And I'm often pointing out that in the classroom, when I get limbic, I don't do my best work. I don't find my best words. That's because my vocabulary is not stored in the limbic system. It's stored in the neocortex. So when I lose my neocortex, when amygdala jumps up and says, oh, it's time to get emotional, I will say some truly strange things. Uh, I've had to reflect on this. I've had to think through very deeply what are the things that get me emotional in the classroom. So, for instance, I have one that you may share with me, uh, which is that I get really frustrated. I get really emotional when students call out, when I'm interrupted, when I'm in the middle of some really fabulous instruction around how to add fractions and somebody just decides they're going to yell out and interrupt. Um, and I will launch into a strange 
emotional rant and speech, asking questions like, how many times do I have to tell you as though there's an answer to that, pointing out that other people are being able to listen to this wonderful and important instruction without interrupting. Why can't you as though there's an answer to that? And what I know I've done is I've created a situation where the young person I'm talking to is kind of sitting there just waiting for my rant to end and isn't really reflecting on their behaviour at all. And I've also totally distracted the rest of my class from thinking about how you add fractions. So the wonderful part about being able to spot when we're emotional in the classroom is that we can plan for it. We can use our neocortex. And when I stopped and thought, okay, so it's calling out, it's fierce and loud interruptions that get me emotional in the classroom. What am I going to do? What am I going to say in that moment? And I have decided that what I do is I go to the neocortex because one of the things that's awesome about the neocortex is that it's just fabulous at being able to store really short bits of language. We can all remember words to songs that we grew up with, even maybe 20, 30, 40, even longer, um, years ago. Um, So it's awesome at being able to store that. I've just stored a simple sentence there. And that sentence is... I'm really disappointed with your choice to call out now. And then I just completely go on with my instruction. I just leave that hanging there. Uh, It's what we call an effective statement. Um, It gives the student an opportunity to think. I don't engage in a conversation at that point. I just let them know that. And then I move on. It means that my response isn't guided by my mood. It's not guided by my energy levels. It's pre-planned. I just have to roll it out. And then I go back to speaking about my, about how to add fractions. And I find that that works for me. Um, does it work every time? Does it stop students from calling out in my classrooms? Absolutely not. Um, but I would suggest to you that my observation of using those, what we call a short effective statement for those moments that make us emotional in the classroom, I, my observation is that it reduces calling out of my classroom by, I think, around somewhere between, around 70 to 80%. And I'll take that. I'll take that. It's wonderful. And it means that I'm not doing these odd lectures and rants that are really just an emotional expression of my own frustration at that point. When we can understand what it is that makes us frustrated in the classroom and what it is that gets us emotional in the classroom, and when we can plan for it, we reduce the likelihood of us feeling negative emotions ourselves from our limbic system. We increase the opportunity for us to experience positive emotions, which can often enhance learning and can improve our own motivation to stay in the classroom. And we also create an environment where our young people are very clearly able to understand what are the behaviours that kind of work in our little social system and what are the behaviours that just don't, that don't draw reward. So when it comes to that and that thinking around the limbic system and the emotion and the the neocortex, it leads me to a further step when it comes to understanding human behaviour. And I guess this um, has been an historical um, revelation or discovery for me. One of my previous roles in education was to uh, head up uh, the behaviour and wellbeing approaches for the the Northern Territory Department of Education. It was a job of high responsibility. I was really honoured and a little bit scared, if I'm really honest, about stepping into helping all of those schools because what I realised was that a lot of the advice that I provided schools with was came from what I would call an, an implicit framework. It came from me experiencing certain things that I had done that had been either 
things that worked or didn't and trying to pass them on to others. And I thought that's an approach that's kind of not rigorous enough, um, not really respectful of some of the challenges that schools in the Northern Territory are facing and I needed to do better. So I read, I read widely on all of the various different theories that you can find around uh, different w- approaches to behaviour and all, all of the different academic papers that I could find. I, I found myself jumping on, uh, on online bookstores and buying all sorts of books and really trying to get myself as knowledgeable, as empowered by knowledge around human behaviour as I could possibly make myself. And I found myself just trying that then after I had accumulated all of this knowledge to how could I sort of distill this into something that educators can access? They don't have the time to do all the reading that I had just done. How do I, how do I kind of bring this down into an essence for them? And I really ended up coming up with what I believe that stood to be true from nearly all of the different theories that I had read. That is what has become for me my, my golden rule of human behaviour. The golden rule that I have of human behaviour is that every behaviour has a meaning and a context. That's it. That's the whole thing. Uh, Every behaviour has a meaning and a context. Now, if we can establish first in terms of meaning, understanding what that's all about, meaning is about getting that a behaviour that you are experiencing is happening for a reason. It's chiefly a young person who's trying to get, avoid, or achieve something. Now, when we observe um, an early childhood student who throws themselves on the ground and rolls under the table and bites legs and kicks and screams and makes a real mess of the situation because you ask them to do something awful, torturous, like count, <laughs> um, we it's easy sometimes to just sort of make an assumption about that kid is just cracking it or being a pain in the neck. Um, the problem with that is there's kind of nowhere to go. I don't. I certainly, in all the reading that I came across, I didn't find any manuals around what do I do with kids who are cracking it or kids who are being a pain in the neck. Um, it's an unhelpful assumption in terms of determining what I might do next about it. But if I can think even about that context, a young person has thrown themselves on the ground is rolling around under a table, harming other people, screaming and yelling. What did I do? Because I asked them to count. Okay, a young person that d- demonstrating any behaviour is trying to get, avoid or achieve. Which one is it? Well, most of us would re- arrive at a reasonable expectation that that's a young person who's trying to avoid and they're trying to avoid counting. And when we do that, we can go, right, that's what this is all about. The next part of this is asking ourselves, why is it happening here? The golden rule of human behaviour, everything is happening with meaning and context, which means that let's explore context now. There's a reason that this behaviour is happening here. There's a reason that this this behaviour is happening in the company of the people that it's happening in. And what we need to understand as teachers is sometimes we can't impact the context in which our young people are growing at home. That's just where they are. But we can impact context, the, the context that they walk into in the classroom. From about the age of two and a half, young people are adjusting their behaviour for context. And that's why you'll often see uh, a really happy and playful toddler in a, cl- in a, in a room. But if a, if a large stranger walks into the classroom, in, into the room, then they'll cling to 
a parent's leg for a short period of time until they re-establish that this context is again safe and then they'll go back to their playfulness. So what we don't realise is there's a wonderful opportunity when our young people come into the classroom to impact the environment, that the context that they walk into such that it's geared for the right behaviours. If we establish a classroom, for instance, that is all rows with an authority figure at the front of the classroom, we can expect students to sometimes feel authority um, and we can expect them to sometimes push back against that authority and we can expect them sometimes to be intimidated by that authority. But if the classroom is set up so that the young people are working in groups, then there's a really clear message. We often talk in a restorative practices model around creating room in our learning environments for circles so that young people can feel that they're doing education with the, other, the, the educator rather than having education done to them by an authoritarian figure in the classroom. And that's a really important thing to figure. And there are always opportunities for us when it comes to classroom architecture, when it comes to time, when it comes to our own role as part of the context to kind of change things a little bit so that we can get a be- have a better chance of a young person demonstrating behaviours that we can thank and congratulate them for, rather than have them walk into an environment that's perhaps sometimes geared such that they're likely to make, make a poor choice, and that's then a behaviour that we need to address from a negative point of view. Now, my contention to you is that if you can kind of take that on board, if you can say that, okay, I will adopt for a while a little bit of thinking that that every behaviour has a meaning and a context, then I would contend that what happens to you is that you take the high road. Um, And what I mean by the high road is that you'll go the three-step process for being able to encounter a behaviour in your presence. And first step is that you'll recognise it. You'll go, right, that's that kind of behaviour. And what will happen when you take that kind of kind of behaviour, when you recognise it, is that you will understand it because you know that it's, ha- it's a young person trying to get, avoid and achieve something and you will know also that it's happening for a reason. And the next thing you'll do is you'll respond. And the wonderful news about responding because you've recognised and because you've understood is that your responses will come from your neocortex. The alternative, of course, is to take the, what I would call the low road. And that is to make an assumption about cracking it or pain in the neckness, at which point, because there's no manual, you'll have to guess. And your guessing will most likely be a limbic response. You may, like me, lapse into a rant. Um, You may just try whatever idea comes into your head. You may say some really strange stuff like I do, but you've reduced the chances of you being successful in that moment. Now, as I mentioned, getting strategic about human behaviour can be flawed because we can lead ourselves to judgement. We can lead ourselves to think that something worked or didn't, and we can discard some really good practice. All we're really looking to do when we're in the classroom, when it's in terms of understanding human behaviour, is to keep ourselves using our neocortex, to keep coming up with preventative as well as responsive strategies that kind of tilt the odds in our favour and in the favour of our students being successful too. Sometimes you'll get lucky and you'll tilt the odds in your favour and get a fabulous result. Sometimes you won't, and that's okay. Um, Because the flip of that is that, of course, there are times when we don't get it right and we sometimes get away with it. We get lucky as well. Luck's an important factor when it comes to to student behaviour. But we don't apply that luck to the outcome. We apply it to the process. Do we give ourselves the very best chance to get lucky? And my belief is that if you're able to just 
stop and think about that golden rule. If you just stop and I are able to contemplate how much you are using your neocortex versus your limbic system in the classroom, you're going to start to tilt the odds in your favour. Hey, thank you so much for joining me today. I really hope that this is a, a valuable podcast for you. We're going to be back in number two, in podcast number two, where we're going to talk a little bit further about understanding further a little bit of the behavioral motivation. Why do we do the things that we do? And I really hope you'll be able to sit there through that one too. These podcasts are designed so that you can access them when it works for you. Perhaps you're in the car on the way home. Um, perhaps you're gardening. <laughs> perhaps you're going for a walk or a jog. Uh, and I hope that works for you. I find that sometimes I'm able to best access my neocortex when those activities are going on. I'll see you for podcast too.